Kubernetes community, and welcome back to another episode of uh, PodCTL. It's an interesting week. We had a lot of news come in uh, that we're going to get to in just a little bit. And uh, later after that, we're going to get into you know discussion about container security. Brian, uh, how's your week going? Uh, the week's good. I, I actually was, I was in Turkey this week, so I was at a, a Red Hat Forum event, which is like our Red Hat Summit on the road. So I got to got to go to the Middle East for uh, for a few days, got to see a new location. That was pretty cool. But back, you know, happy to be jumping back on the show and um, we've been uh, getting a lot of feedback from people about what they want to hear and uh, I think this week we're going to we're going to kind of get back into some of those things they want. The one other little uh, housekeeping note people might notice that the show is uh, uh, number 14 and they might be wondering where number 13 is in their podcatcher. At least I am partially superstitious so we're going to skip 13 uh, for for bad luck hopefully. Hopefully this show is good and uh, we we can get the bad luck out of the system. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of the things people asked for and I, and I think we just sort of forgot it. It wasn't on purpose. They said, "Hey, you guys used to talk about some of the news of the of the industry. Can you can you bring that back?" So uh we thought we would uh, we'd, we'd talk a little about what's going on in the industry. I think you know, we, we had a, a string of interviews there in a row where it was like, oh, well, we, you know, we weren't doing the news on the interview ones. And then that, that kind of fell by the wayside. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and uh, you know, perfect timing. A bunch of uh, news that came out in the last you know, week or two or, or so. Uh, but the funny thing, they're, they're pretty much all of the same news, just from different companies. Right. Right. I, I think they all fall. And we'll put the links in the show notes. Um, and we're always trying to be very conscious about this because it, in all transparency, uh, you, you know, you and I both work for Red Hat. We compete in this market space. We, we contribute a lot to the Kubernetes community. Um, so we don't want this to come across as bias. But uh, I, I think the best way to summarize the news is uh, every vendor in the industry now has a checkbox that says in some way, shape or form, they will add Kubernetes to their platform. Yeah. I mean, it, it's basically, uh, yeah, the Kubernetes announcement Mad Libs. So yeah. Insert company name announces a Kubernetes and circle if it's going to be a, a SaaS offering or a distribution or, or something like that. And and I think you know besides the competitive aspect of it, I think it just really hammers home the hey man, Kubernetes is one. This is this is the thing that people are coalescing around uh, as a tech community. Right. So I, I mean it's it's you know it, it's more noise, but at the same time it, it's good. I mean that's one of the downsides of. Uh, Right, the open source approach is you know fifty different people trying to solve the same problem fifty different ways. You hope eventually it coalesces around the best way, and I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, no, it's all good news. We're we're joking about it a little bit. I I think I, I sort of I'll lump these these announcements into sort of three buckets, right? So there was a series of announcements. So there was and I can't remember if we covered this one or not, but we'll cover it again. So Google Cloud, VMware, and Pivotal uh, announced that they're going to um, add support for Google. Kubernetes, um, or you know, syncing with Google Google Kubernetes. There's a project called Kubo, which is helping to use the the Bosch uh, installer from Cloud Foundry to install Kubernetes. So in essence, you know, the, that that threesome is going to have Kubernetes support. Google also made an announcement with Cisco uh, this last week or so for sort of a similar announcement. Um, you know, Google's going to provide the Kubernetes uh, expertise. Um, Cisco is going to provide an on-prem hardware platform to distribute it. It's called Hyperflex. It's sort of an HCI implementation which that announcement, again, was similar to Google doing some work with Nutanix a few weeks or months back about distributing, not Google's distribution, because there's not really a Google distribution, but um, you know Google kind of helping to implement Kubernetes on, 
on-prem. So they all sort of fit into this bucket of Google working with a number of companies to try and make a Kubernetes-centric hybrid story that works with the Google Cloud GKE implementation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, that's that's a good way to put it there. And I think it was, it was interesting to see how quickly, you know, that Kubo project as sort of like a thing just in the Cloud Foundry community then became now uh, the, the Cloud Foundry container runtime right. uh, project. But yeah, inside that. But but yeah, I think the, the, the interesting thing to me is the hybrid aspect of it, right? So whether it's you're going to use in these cases, you're talking right GKE and, and on-prem or something like that or multiple clouds. And I think those are kind of the, the more interesting uh, pieces to some of these announcements. So the second bucket of announcements to me falls into, so you had uh, Rancher Rancher Labs, who for a while had supported a whole bunch of different orchestrators. They'd supported Mesos. They had their own orchestrator. I think it was called um, Cattle. And then they also supported Kubernetes. They also supported Docker Swarm. They basically have said, we no longer want to be in the business of, of supporting our own stuff, kind of focus on Kubernetes. And then maybe not surprising, but kind of maybe the bigger announcement in that same bucket was Docker uh, here at the last DockerCon said, hey, um, we're also adding Kubernetes support. So we're going to we're going to still support Swarm, but we're also going to support Kubernetes. And, uh, you know, so again, that's another one of these sort of trends of people saying, you know, supporting these other orchestrators is taxing on our engineering time. People don't necessarily want them because they're concerned. Is it is it a standard? Will it will it live going forward? You know, there's a couple of announcements sort of in that bucket of category. Again, you know, most of them are the, well, we're doing Kubernetes also kind of uh, framework. And I think that's just sort of a, a matter of time thing that, that makes sense of, hey, if, if this is what everyone's using as the orchestrator, what percentage of our customers are using Marathon or, you know, in the case of Mesos or Rancher or some of their other ones, it's, it's just that the, the engineering resources are too expensive to spend on stuff customers aren't using. Right. And then the third category, um, and there was a couple in there. And, and again, we, we apologize if we if we missed a few, right? There, there's just so much going on in the, in the industry. It's sometimes it's hard to keep up with them all. Oracle had made some announcements around, uh, you know, they're going to get in the CNCF. Uh, Oracle Open World came along. They announced they're going to support Kubernetes on Oracle Linux. And then they have a couple of new sort of installer tools. They're working with Terraform and some other things to make it easier to install Kubernetes into like the Oracle cloud environment. And then uh, Heptio, who we've talked about a couple of times before, Joe Beta's company and Craig McLucky's company, you know, continue to make um, some tools that are kind of outside of Kubernetes, but are trying to make Kubernetes easier to, to manage and operate. So, you know, like a, how to backup tool environment, how to manage a Kubernetes cluster environment. They had another one they announced, but I kind of put those into the category of saying, yeah, we, we support Kubernetes or we, we've already sort of supported Kubernetes. We don't really want to be in the distribution business, but we want to be in the, you know, tooling business to make it easier for operators, which, you know, is a pretty common thing that we see with, with open source projects is there's always an ecosystem around the tools that, that live around the main project. Yeah, I think I I think that's one of the the kind of the structure of the Kubernetes community that's that's worked out so well worked out well so far and has been very helpful. The here's clearly defined what's Kubernetes and then um, having that ecosystem around it to provide those pieces. Yeah, the most recent one from Heptio I think was to uh, to deploy Envoy into uh, and connect it up with Kubernetes. Um, right. on the ingress side. And yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, when she realized like, cool, we want to do Kubernetes, like, well, you need all these other things. Like, okay, well, how do we make all, you know, I think a lot of the, 
falls into two buckets now, right? Is the we're going to do it for you thing, like whether it's GKE or, you know, or some of the other, you know, pre-built offerings or, you know, we're building all the stuff around it too to make it a complete package, you know. Right. I think those are those are what people are looking for. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're very much going to eventually see, um, you know, sort of three distinct camps that people are going to decide on. They're going to decide that they don't want to be in the in the Kubernetes operation space at all. They're going to they're going to go to some public cloud service. Oh, the other one we forgot about was uh, Microsoft announced that. So Microsoft in the past has had this thing called the Azure Container Service, and they call it ACS, Azure Container Service. It supported Docker Swarm. It supported Mesos, uh, Mesosphere, Marathon, and it also supported Kubernetes. And then they made an announcement that's called the Azure Kubernetes Service, or I guess it's the new Azure Container Service, but the, it's it's now AKS, not to be confused with the American Council Society. Um, <laughs> or, uh, but uh, it's now sort of like the official Kubernetes version that's in Microsoft. But, but I think we're going to see like, there's going to be people that say, I don't want to be in any operations. I'm going to just use one of the public cloud providers. Um, so a GKE or an AKS or, or you know whatever Amazon's going to announce here at reInvent that we expect to come out. You're going to have those who say, you know what, I don't really want to be in the putting it together business. So let me get one of these platforms, you know, OpenShift or whatever else is out there that's sort of done for me because I don't want to manage upgrades and so forth. And then you're going to have kind of that that community of people that are just tinkerers and they're going to want to do do-it-yourself stuff. And it'll be very interesting over the next year or so to watch which of those approaches, you know, tends to garner more attention, more customers, more tooling around it and so forth. Yeah, I think it's people have their, depending on your kind of your background, where you come from kind of informs your biases, like like most things as people. So when you come from one, you're not even on the vendor side, just even your experiences in IT. Oh, this is this is the way it's definitely going to go this way. It's definitely going to go that way. Uh, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it actually shakes out. Right. We've seen lots of examples of companies who, you know, started down one path and, and then realized, oh, okay, that, that doesn't fit our culture. It doesn't fit our skills or didn't work out the way we wanted to. Maybe the timing wasn't right. And, and then they've, they've moved to other approaches. So it'll, it'll be interesting. And, and the thing we always sort of guide people to is, uh, you know, I think the Kubernetes market is still in early enough days, although the, I mean, the technology is maturing a lot, but, but the market as a whole is still early enough that, you know, you kind of have to read surveys and, uh, you know, customer case studies with a little bit of a grain of salt in terms of like, how early are they? Uh, how stable have they gotten? Because, you know, people do switch, you know, even after two years of being like, well, we used to build our own platform. And then two years in, they're like, it's just too much to maintain. We're going to we're gonna take a different approach. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch that uh, emerge and evolve. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a, a good uh, piece of advice anyway when it comes to customer reference stuff. The, you know, the, the, the more, or I should say, the less they tell you about what they're actually doing with the thing is less likely they're actually doing anything with the thing yet, right? So it's right. like, oh, we have this thing and it's awesome. And, you, you know, and then behind the scenes, it's, um, they, they just bought it last week and here's what we plan to do with it kind of thing. Right. Whereas, you know, whether it's a conference or a blog post or case studies, where they're breaking down, like, here's exactly what we're doing. Here's the apps we're running on it. You know, that's where you're like, oh, okay, they're, they're definitely doing it. Like, this is this is helpful information. Yeah, you sort and of, usually those cases, it's also where they're more willing to talk about what went wrong. Right. Because you can tell that they're really easy. We're like, it's amazing. Everything's perfect. It's like, well, you're really using it that much yet? Right. It's just like, oh, we tried this and ooh, we made a big mistake there and we figured this out. And this is still kind of a problem is yeah. where you can tell where someone's actually 
actually really using it. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say look for the scars, right? Because yeah. if, they've, if they've got some scars on their knees and some scabs and stuff like that, it's uh, it's probably being used, uh, like people like to say, it's being used in anger uh, a little bit. So, <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, one of the topics that, that you know, we've, we've been polling people like, hey, what do you want to hear us focus on and so forth? Like one of the big ones has been security, um, not only container security, but Kubernetes security and so forth. And we thought we would tackle that. The challenge with saying security is, it is huge, right? I mean, there are so many moving pieces. There's so many parts, you know, different companies have different philosophies about how to do security. So what we thought we would do is we're going to take security from a stack perspective. We're going to kind of look at it holistically. What do I need in different areas of a stack? And then we're going to break this up into a couple of different shows. So by no means are we going to sort of say, if you listen to this one show, you will know everything about security. So we're going to sort of take a few layers of the stack at a time. We're going to do a couple of different shows and hopefully that'll spur some discussion of people going like, yeah, that made sense or or you know, can you go explore this other approach that some maybe maybe company or community or something has, and um, and we can kind of go from there. But we, we thought we would break it down into sort of manageable bite sized chunks. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's and and security is as much as it's about you know specific technology bits and bytes. It's also you know process people kind of right. usability pieces to that too. So it's so there's so many levels and places you can do it. But I think kind of stepping through the stack is is the kind of most ordered way we can kind of talk about these concepts. Yeah, and the, and the other thing we'll say is is look, you know, ne- neither you or I are uh, like professional CISOs. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I I always have this thing where somebody says, "Hey, can you come in and talk talk about security?" And I'm like, "Okay, who's in the room?" Because if it's somebody who spends all day every day doing nothing but security. Um, you know, there are people that we would love to bring in um, who are going to speak at the same level, have concerns at the same level. This is going to be more of a generalist level thing. So you have a good sense of, okay, what areas should I go explore more? Where should I maybe put some emphasis and stuff? So I kind of want to caveat that um, as well. Like I don't, I don't spend any time like at the Black Hat conference, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not as paranoid as maybe I should be about security. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think that's important distinction too. Is if as long as you know security is treated as some sort of you know black magic, a dark art stuff that only you know very small people understand, then then it's you know then when you see these breaches and stuff, and you're like, why did these developers do this really stupid thing security wise? It's like, well, they didn't talk to the one person at the company that knows that stuff kind of right. thing seems like a bad approach. So I, th- I think, you know, a piece to making sec- to me, the two big things to make thing uh, security more of a priority is make it you know more approachable as well as a uh, better user experience. Right. Right. And, and get more people involved. It's, you know, security is like people like to say, security is kind of everybody's job. It's not, it's not one person's job. Let's sort of start at the bottom of the stack. Um, we'll kind of start with some foundation. You know, I've sort of listed it in our notes as what do we need on a container host? What, you know, on the actual machines that are that are going to run the containers run the applications let's walk through what we need at that that base foundation to uh to start having a, a secure foundation in place i think the, mo- the kind of like the most basic levels because when, when we're talking containers you know microsoft now has you know their their windows container service but generally most of the container stuff we're talking about is is linux right right uh, and that's where we're starting so i mean there's other concepts in unix like zones and jails uh, that are sort of what we consider a first-class concept. And, and as we've said on here before, and, and you'll see other places, there's no such thing as containers. In Linux, you can't say like, you know, container create, and it just, you know, it's it's something in the kernel. Uh, so it's a collection of, of kernel features that are kind of smushed together to make a container. So I think the most basic one we start with is um, kernel namespaces. Um, so in, the, in Linux, the concept of namespaces provide abstraction. So whatever process is running in the namespace, 
uh, they only see the stuff in their namespace. Uh, a, a very basic example of this is if you're an unprivileged user in Linux and, and you run like a PS or something like that to see what's running and there's stuff that's, you know, root level processes, you know, you can't see them. That's like the very, very basic, you know, kind of level there. And the, the idea here with containers is make giving each container a namespace. So just like you have multiple users. So if we're both logged into the same Linux system, I can't see what processes you're running. You can't see what processes I'm running to take that up to to using that for containers. Yeah, and, and and those really provide sort of isolation. So when people typically think about like multi-tenancy or they think about isolation because, you know, it's the, the, the classic example of like, hey, if Pepsi and Coke both ran on the same box, you know, you wouldn't want them to see each other's stuff. Um, namespaces is that first level of isolation. You know, you can only see what you're allowed to see. Um, and then there's also namespaces also begins to sort of provide an isolation or a separation between the things that are kind of root level, um, which typically are going to be, you know, operators, well-trusted, you know, put processes around these and sort of user level, which is going to be more what developers deal with. And there's some sandbox, uh, you know, elements of that. And, you know, you can do what you want to do, but only within your your confined space. I think, I think that's, uh, I would have kind of like caveated slightly with uh, namespaces are more about visibility than than anything, right? So it's, it's what you're seeing, but you still have kind of those capabilities to make, you know, certain kernel calls depending on the user you're running as. And especially at the beginning when all containers and, and still today, some people do, you know, containers running as root, just because you couldn't see the other processes didn't mean you definitely couldn't interact with them. So, so that's where I would say that next layer up I would go with is uh, SecComp or Secure Computing with Filters is, you know, kind of the, I guess that's not an acronym, uh, that name there. Um, What that does is it's basically kernel call, system call filters. So you're basically saying, here's the, we're going to filter out which uh, system calls you can make or not. So I think I think that came in 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 on the in the Linux container world in Docker 1.10 was hey by default you can't make these system calls and they're, and they're the types of stuff which would be things like uh, hey can you talk to you know some of the you know kernel keyring which you wouldn't you know you wouldn't want to do, be able to do and that's something that's not namespaced anyway uh, those type of capabilities so it's first like a bare minimum of like you would definitely not want a container to ever be able to do these things uh, so those separate comp filters are sort of your your starting point um but then from there you can you can obviously add more but that's sort of like the the basic defaults and and again you know it's important that we sort of continue to remind people like there are host level os things that have to happen and there's sort of container level right so so think about it as you know there 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 are two different layers on, on any given host there's what the the container does and then there's stuff that is just running uh, as you know as the linux machine the linux kernel for that, that services everything. So, you know, we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit throughout this, but, um, you, you know, there, there's some separation between what the, what the container layers sort of do and the, and the host layer do. I think the next thing that I would put on there is what would be considered like SE Linux, um, you know, or in some cases people talk about something like app armor. It's essentially access control, uh, you know, sort of mandated access control that happens. Um, you know, it dictates what you can what you can do, who's allowed. It's more about who is allowed to do certain things, you know, or, or which container or which applications allowed to do this. So it's, you know, sort of mandatory access control. 
One of the things that comes up a lot when we we talk about containers and and sort of the intersection of containers and security is people sometimes will get frustrated because some of the things that you you might download from Docker Hub you know don't have a lot of those security things turned on. They're they're sort of set up to to run as wide open as possible, make a demo as easy as possible, and all that stuff. So some of these things may sort of sound new to people because they're like, well, I don't even turn any of those things on, and I download something from Docker Hub and it just sort of works. Like, what do you mean I need all this stuff? This is this type of stuff, um, again, at the host level, you need to sort of harden the environment and and start to provide isolations and filters and access and control that, that's going to dictate, okay, this application is really only supposed to do these things. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is something, so the, some of these things like, like AppArmor and, and like SE Linux um, aren't new. You know, they're not a container specific thing. Like right. you said, it's, it's over Linux thing. I think what why we're seeing more use of them now, specifically with containers, is not just like, hey, I'm going to have a bunch, you know, I could have 500 containers on this host. So I'm more concerned with you know them talking to each other versus, you know, them being their own VM or, or whatever. Um, but I think the other piece of it, too, is, you know, one of the powers of, of containers and containerization is, you know, very explicitly defined uh, prereqs and and dependencies. So uh, your your Docker file or whatever says, you know, in, you know, start with this base, you know, start with this rel image, install this software, you know, copy this war file, you know, run this on this port. It's very specific. Well, I think that also makes stuff like SE Linux way easier to use because you're all, you know, one of SE Linux thing it, it does, you know, basically labeling. So you're saying like this app's allowed to, you know, talk on this port and things like that. Well, it's, you've already defined it. So you actually don't even have to be like, well, now I have to also configure SE Linux. Right. You know, you've, you've already defined what that app should be able to do. So then that can be applied there. So it's much more seamless to, uh, to the user. And, and the last thing that I think that we ought to, we ought to highlight is, um, so we've, you know, we've sort of isolated, uh, the, the you know the containerized application we've we've dictated its access control what can what it can talk to some of the you know what processes it can talk to how do we then manage that uh, it doesn't just consume all the resources on any given host um, you know how do we make sure sort of you avoid no- noisy neighbor type of problems which some people don't think about security but but at the end of the day if something's not available, um, it, you know, it, it's not secure either at that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what, you know, if you have a, especially if you have something public facing and you have one container, whether it's, you know, totally, you know, benign coding mistake that has it have like a race condition or it's, you know, malicious, you know, someone running Bitcoin miners on, on your, right. uh, on your Kubernetes environment. Um, the way it can, the resource isolation piece of it is handled through C groups or control groups. Again, another Linux kernel feature, uh, which allows, uh, basically, the kernel to carve up resources for again, it was originally for processes and things like that, but you can carve it up for these containers to say, here's how much you get um, from a from a resource perspective. So by constraining uh, those containers, that stops like, well, if this is the most amount of memory it gets. If you have a memory leak in a container, it's not going to, you know, basically bomb the whole host and, and lose all the other containers. Right, right. So, you know, I, I think to summarize that, there's there are a number of, of basic things that you need to do. Uh, sort of namespaces and C groups is what people typically talk about when they talk about containers. Um, but it is important to, um, you know, be digging into, you know, uh, AppArmor or SE Linux. You know, how do I how do I secure uh, the environment? Um, also, you know, what what you can do about sort of Linux capabilities. Um, you know, as well as uh, uh, as well as you know, sec comp and so forth. So we'll put links to all these things. Um, but again, what this really says is, um, you know, get together with your security team, get together with your operations team, and because containers and, and Kubernetes are so prescriptive, you can really be very granular about what you define. Um, you know, sit down with with those folks and say like. 
what exactly do we want? And then we only want that to happen. And the nice thing is you can, you can then sort of prescriptively define that's, that's what we want to happen. And then we know uh, that, you know, I can go to an auditor, I can go to whoever and say, this is what it should look like. Yeah, I think that's, that's really the change is, is less about, you know, you said these technologies mostly are pre-existing for, for years. It's really more, I feel like the containers enable the process better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so back in the day, developers are developing on, you know, some VMs or whatever, they're developing software, ops dumps into some VMs, it's running somewhere, and then it goes, here you go, security, secure this. Right. And I try to like figure out how to protect it without breaking it kind of thing where, where this can be more involved in the process. So, you know, saying like, okay, you know, starting with whether it's a container images or yeah, how, how should we have our SC Linux profile set up? Will this cause any problems? You know, having, you know, basically people involved in the whole process from, from the developer security folks and, and, and ops to have that sort of secure pipeline for your applications. Right. I think it's really the, the cool thing that containers enable. Right. Well, and, and the other thing a lot of times with, with VMs was, you know, people just did a P to V process. So they took whatever was running on that old machine, whatever bits were in there, whatever other applications had gotten installed or, you know, whatever it was. And then they just picked it up and moved it and said, okay, well, it's in a VM. I hope the VM security takes care of it. I mean, the containers, you have to sort of explicitly go in, build the layers of it, explain what's going to be in the container. So it, it is sort of a forcing function for you to say, hey, hang on, do I still need that stuff? You know, or, or why do I still need that layer, that, that other agent that we throw in there for monitoring or something or this library? So, you know, I think we're going to see cleaner and cleaner security, you know, knock on wood, uh, with, with containers, just because it does force you to go, why do we do that stuff? And it isn't, like you said, it isn't just picking it up and and throwing it over the wall and then telling security to figure it out. You know, having that ease of use is so uh, so critical for security. You know, if you think about, you know, the number of people that were, you you know, were putting good pass codes on their phone and stuff like that. And then Touch ID came along and, and other fingerprint. And it was this, well, this, you've made security easier, so I'm more likely to do it. Uh, I think I think that apply, you know, SE Linux, I think, is a perfect example. I, I bet you tons of, you know, if you, if you, you know, pulled all a bunch of Linux VMs running in dev environments and, and tests and stuff like that, how many of them have SE Linux disabled right. um, versus how many people are running, say, for example, like OpenShift running containers and they don't even realize that SE Linux is on. Right. So I mean that's 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 the you know the the perfect world with some security technologies is it becomes so seamless um that that it's on by default. Um so just to to keep this moving because again we're going to try and cover a lot of stuff here. So we we've got the hosts, we've got the host locked down fairly well. Um got those secure. Now let's talk about the content. So before we even uh you know get an application running in a container, where does this content come from? The content that's going to live in a container, the the binaries, the bits, the libraries and so forth. Like what do we have to think about in terms of where the applications come from and how do we keep track of them? Well, yeah, so it's your, your container image is the thing that's running, but like you said, that's that's sort of at the end. That's you know that's the food out on the table, but you know then you're going back to who's cooking it and where the ingredients coming from. Right. Um, so you know your first piece is where the ingredients coming from. Whether it's you're starting with your your base sort of like OS container image, um, and do you trust the loca- you know where you're getting that? Is it signed properly? All those types of things. Um, is it you know an internal registry? Is it you know a public Public registry, something like Docker Hub, where they're getting it. Um, that that's like the basic of you know, and then even your your bits, right? Whatever code you're running or applications you're installing in a container, where they come from, how much do you trust them? Uh, all that kind of bit. Yeah, and so I, I think it's important, like you said, um, because you know we, we've seen over time, and, and this is by no means a, a knock on Docker Hub, but I mean we've seen as the as the security companies are going out and they're saying, hey. Uh, you know, Docker Hub, for example, got 12 billion polls last year. Well, what's what's out there? 
And we've seen some studies that have come out and said, you know, hey, 60, 70% of the stuff that's on Docker Hub, because it is a public registry, you know, has some sort of known vulnerability in it, right? So it that sort of data, you know, while it it highlights that there's a huge demand around, you know, making it simple, like you said. Um, there's also huge opportunities for for vulnerabilities to get introduced. So it it sort of should wake you up to say, hey, um, where am I getting my content from? Number one, like you said, do I trust it? And you know, that means, do I get it from a vendor? Do I get it from some third party? But it has some mechanism for me to validate where it came from. And then, like you said, you know, the most basic thing you want to do is, can it be signed? Do I know that it, you know, it's cryptographically what it's supposed to be, and that can be validated? And that's the that's the sort of first good hygiene you have. What about once you've validated that stuff? You know, let's say we're six months into some having an application, and there's some CVEs or some patches or vulnerabilities that are known. Like, how do I deal with that stuff? Yeah. So, so you again, the 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 image content, you know, your final image that you're actually running includes, you know, the starting image, say it came from, say it came from us, it's a rail image or, or you know, or Ubuntu or wherever it comes from. You, you know, you have a known good and then you put your code into it, which was known good at the time and you're running it. Uh, so because the, the actual container itself is images is immutable, you're not worried about something being changed there, but then something, you know, an undisclosed vulnerability comes out. How do we see where that applies to us? You know, it's as simple as, you know, whether it's checking your, you know, the, the stuff that you were installing or, or more more you know automatically is scanning right so right. hey i know these containers installed all these npm modules and this one npm version of this one you know a node module has this vul- known vulnerability so you can get a, get a picture of like hey here's here's where we have this problem in all these containers right or maybe we don't have that problem we you know we're using a later version we're good well and a lot of that again so many of these things that we talk about are just sort of common good hygiene um, a lot of that's going to come back to you know, how do you do patch management, right? We're not doing live patching anymore. We're, we're, we're building, we're rebuilding immutable images, but you do want to have a, a known good patch management system. Where do you get your patches from? Is it from the community? Is it from a vendor? Um, does that vendor or community have an automated mechanism where you can subscribe to something that it's, it's automatically going to get you those? And or you know, are you having to manually go get them? Um, right, like sort of sort of a expedient, 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 expedient situation where you know there was a known vo- there was a known patch to a vulnerability, but you didn't go out and get it. You know, you really want to make sure you're putting those things in place because as more and more of these projects are moving fast, or uh, you know, vulnerabilities are out there, you you want the system to just sort of automatically be putting the, the latest and greatest out there for you that you can then go pull it when it makes sense for you. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is the, uh, you know, kind of, you know, one of the questions that we get sometimes from, from people is like, Oh, well, if, if this, all this, Hey, the thing I do right now is I build, you know, I build VMs like, Ooh, if we're all content, like what's my job going to be like one of the things, you know, it's really easy to pull down a full container image, you know, like start with, you know, Give me, you know, Ubuntu 16.04, give me RHEL 7, you know, run some installs, install a bunch of stuff and then package it up and boom there. And it's like, well, yeah, you know what? Now that that container has a vulnerability of a thing that's installed that you're not even using. So now you have to, you know, patch that and repackage it. um, But you didn't have to if you didn't include there. So, you know, slimming down images, um, you know, taking out unnecessary stuff. You know, that's that's sort of, you know, an, a function and, and art onto itself. So, you know, those I think those type of people can be looking at those roles and, and using tools like like build uh, and other things that can help you slim those down. So you, you, it's all about, you know, like we've said for years, what's you know, reducing your attack surface. So if you have just the, the beauty of containers, you can have just the bare minimum of what you need to run that app. You don't need a full blown you know Linux distro in there. Well, and, and the other thing that that I'll recommend, and I hope this doesn't come across as, as biased, is you do sort of have to ask, OK, OK, if, if Linux are 
part of, of, or I'm sorry, if containers are part of the Linux operating system, they're part of the kernel and so forth, kind of who is your Linux vendor or your Linux trusted partner at, at that point, right? And I say that in the context of, you know, not that, you know, a Red Hat or a Canonical or anybody who's who's kind of in the Linux business should be the only one. But for example, if you look at some of those announcements that we talked about earlier, and you're going to be getting your containers or your Kubernetes from somebody, how are they going to then manage the Linux interaction? Because in this process, you do need some mechanism that says, hey, if there's a vulnerability in a container or an application, but there's also a vulnerability in Linux, like where am I going to get that from? And and what's the what's the process going to be? Is it is it direct with somebody? Is it secondarily to a third party? Like make sure you know what that looks like. Um, you know, not necessarily that you have to go to any one specific company, uh, but make sure you know what that looks like because not knowing sort of where your Linux comes from or how you're going to interact with Linux updates, you, you want to know that before you have a bad day or there's a big vulnerability. Yeah. I- I think that's key, you know, kind of that's where the difference between VMs and containers are, you know, right. your your containers are interacting directly, you know, they're, they're Linux processes, they're not totally a separate thing. So yeah, if, there, if there's some sort of, hey, we found this, this uh, you know, container escape flaw, or, you know, or some sort of privilege, privilege escalation, a lot of times it's going to be, hey, there's this kernel thing we need to fix. So yeah, you need to know where you're, you know, you know, you don't have to go to a specific vendor, but you need to know where your Linux is coming from and what your policies and what that, you know, hey, we if this CV comes like how long before we can get a patch kernel, how does this work? How do we test this? You know, right, just right. knowing those things uh, ahead of time will be key. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like know who your doctor is and know where your hospital is before you have a heart attack. Kind of thing. So, <laughs> yep. Um, okay. So next thing I've got in the stack. So we, we sort of, we've talked about content. We've talked about the host. Let's talk about container registries because at some point I want to run an application and uh, you know, in order for that application to run, it's, going to pull an image from a container registry or as it does an update or something, it's going to pull it from a container registry. Let's talk about the basics of security around a container registry. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, when, when a, when you give a command or, you know, in, in Kube and you say, here, run this pod and it goes, Ooh, uh, yeah. The first thing that that node does is, well, I don't have that container image cached locally, so I need to go get it. So then it's going to a registry, um, whether it's an on, you know, one of your own on-prem internal registries, it's a public registry like the Docker hub. That's your question is wh- where, where, <laughs> Where are you going to keep your images? Right. Um, you know, for for me as a you know home hobbyist, Docker Hub is, is just fine. I don't need to run my own on prem registry for like ten containers. But for an enterprise, yeah, you're gonna, you're going to have your own uh, registries uh, internally where you're going to keep your images. Yeah, and I think there's um there's this sort of you know common saying that you hear a lot of times from people from 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 good sys admins, which is like you know own your dependencies. Well, a container registry is a massive dependency in a in a container environment because Again, whenever you need to spin up containers, spin up pods, uh, you know, update them and so forth, it's going to go find a registry. Some of the basic things I think you want to make sure you know are in your in your container or in the way that, say, you know, your environment is going to go pull containers. What's the order that it pulls from? Right, because a lot of times, uh, by default, maybe it's going to try and pull from Docker Hub, which is a you know an off-premise, you know, not owned by you registry. And then if that fails, for example, it can't find an image. Then maybe it's going to say, okay, let me go to this list of registries that you've given me. You know, you, you kind of want to know, okay, what is that ordered list? Um, you know, can I? 
if I definitely don't want to go out to Docker Hub and spend the time or I don't want to pull things across the internet, like, can I remove that? Can I take that off the list and only use this list of ones that, that our company owns and operates and so forth? So that's a, that's a first step basic thing. What about kind of knowing what's in the registry? How do we, um, you know, how do we keep track of what's in there? Can we tag it for versioning? Can we tag it for updates? All those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those are the two big things are, are you know, kind of tagging and, and signing. It's really the metadata around the container. Is, is this container exactly what we're expecting it to be? You know, is it the thing we put in there or was there some sort of vulnerability and someone's able to connect to our registry and swap it out for something with some malicious code in or something like that? So is it the thing we're expecting it to be? You know, is it is it the version we expect it to be? All those uh, all those types of things. And and really, that's where the, the container to me, the container registry comes a piece of that sort of pipeline is a pretty common approach is, hey, we have our you know registry where we're pushing code developers work in. Then before it will move from that registry to our, say, testing registry where our testing environment pulls from, you know, and we do a, a lot of scanning and, and signing and the same thing before it moves to production. So it's sort of that pipeline of how the image gets from, you know, the initial one being built by the developer to, um, you know, do we trust it in production? Yeah. And I, and I think it's important to point out to people, there isn't, so number one, the, the registry isn't part of Kubernetes, right? It, like there's not a Kubernetes registry function or something. It's, you know, there is certain amount of standardization around container registries. They're, you know, for the most part, they're going to be kind of, Docker project compliant, OCI compliant. So you can, you can access it through sort of a common API. You expect a certain format to come off of there, but there is going to be some differences between different implementations of registries. So what you, you do kind of want to look at, uh, you know, do I want it to be integrated with my platform? If that's important to you, you know, one less piece to worry about. You want to look at, does it have some integrated mechanisms to do signing of those images, or or is there a third party way to plug that in? That's that's important. Can I validate the image? And then I, I think you also at some point may want to say, is there a means of scanning the images for you know the content, like what's in there? Did something malicious get in there? So, but again, it's important to to check with the registry that you use to decide to use, um, you know, whether it has those capabilities and uh, you know how much you can you can interact it with say third party tools if if they're important to you. Yeah, and just like anything else security the the more it can be automated the better, right? So, Absolutely. you know, automated scanning, you know, automated, you know, checking the the signatures, you know, not pushing things to the next registry unless it has the signature, you know, all those types of things is the, the more automated the security, the less, you know, manual in- interventions required, you know, the more likely it's going to happen and happen quickly. Right. Yeah, and and more importantly the less mistakes that are going to get made hopefully, uh, manual yep. mistakes. So, Okay, uh, let's sort of let's sort of wrap this up. You know, as, as sort of the last layer in the deck um, that we want to look at, and and that's going to be to to really look at. You know, once we once we have those, we have the images, uh, we have the registry. Let's talk a little bit about about building the the software, building the the containers that that ultimately are going to kind of go into production. So we haven't gotten into production yet. We haven't gotten into the platform yet. But let's talk a little bit about the build process uh, for for getting there. What do we what do we have to think about? Because some of this is going to be security, and some of this is just going to be like you said. You know, how much can we automate? Yeah, yeah, and and I think it, it goes back. It's a similar thing in discussion with the registry, right? Where it's like there's no registry in Kubernetes. It uses you know kind of the standard container interface, you know, registry interfaces and things like that. It's the same thing sort of with how do we get the containers in there? Kubernetes is just going to run the container 
image, how you end up with a container image is, is sort of up to you. So, you know, are you, you know, running doc is your, are your developers running Docker build on their laptops and then pushing it to a registry, you know, using something like OpenShift has a, an automated tooling where you just basically use Git hooks and it can just build it, you know, anytime you commit, you know, um, or is it only build when on specific tags are created? All this, you know, it's kind of how do you get the code from code to container? There's there's the what's your starting image, but then there's also how's the actual build process work? And the other, there, you know, there's a couple other small tips and tricks that you want to look at, um, you know, within that build process. You know, there's there's probably definitely going to be a, an automated test process. So, um, you know, within that automated testing suite, you want to be having it look at, you know, not only does it match all these tests that we've built, um, but also, you know, can I do dynamic code analysis? Uh, you know, are there vulnerabilities that maybe have gotten introduced or things that are, you know, known to are going to cause security problems as well as static code analysis. And, and again, those are, you know, by no means defined by a container, defined by uh, Kubernetes. They're, they're just kind of good, uh, you know, software development best practices that, that you want to, you know, make sure that you're, you're introducing into, into your pipeline, into your culture and, and process and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, in a you know sort of in a perfect world, um, you know, it gets to the point where you know the developer you know hits commit on on a you know on a on a on a piece of code and it triggers off the the whole process of of scanning and checking and building and and all those ways where it's they're they're just focused on building that code then instead of you know worrying about you know what happens next. Right, and I, I know we do a lot of we do a lot of uh, demos and show people things like okay, you write your code, you push it into Jenkins. Jenkins has a bunch of automated tests, but we also will integrate, for example, like with SonarCube or something like that, or you know one of the security vendors that uh, you know will will validate the code. We'll look at the code as it's going through the, that automated test process. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the the thing is each stage needs a slightly different look, right? So when right. you're you're committing the code, it's like hey, let's take a really close look at the code. Um, you know, if, when you're building the container it's like well what let's take a look at the you know the starting image do we have any problems there and then it's like well we have your code plus its dependencies you know whether it's python or you know or node or, or java you've installed those things like okay now do we have any problems there and then the final sort of image like do we see anything there so you know i think we've gone through a, a good chunk of the stack we've hit a lot of the lower level stuff um, we've gone a little longer than we do usually do but we wanted to spend a lot of time to sort of Make sure that you're getting the foundation in place, right? This is very foundational stuff. Um, hopefully, it provides you a little bit of a checklist of okay, we got to think through those things. We got to get the foundation right. We got to know where things are coming from, where it's going to reside, where we're going to pull from, um, and we're going to cover a lot of the other areas. You know, the actual platforms themselves, the Kubernetes interaction. Maybe we'll talk about some multi-cloud, hybrid cloud interactions, and so forth in, in a next one. But we wanted to get you a really stable foundation for uh, where we're going to go with this security conversation. So, Tyler, any last thoughts before we wrap? this one up um no I, th I think the only thing i would say is like you said you know be be thoughtful about these things and, and kind of consider them and in and hopefully it shouldn't be you should be thinking about all of these things all the time but more of just a let's think about how we want to handle them and then hopefully automate that so then we don't have to think about it much after that <laughs> exactly yeah put it put it in place um yeah you don't have to do this every day but uh, again automate uh, and like you like you always say you know make it codified make it known what you want it to be and then you can always go back to that uh, that sort of codified state that codified existence and you can you can measure it against what it's supposed to look like uh, that your, your your team your security team your dev team and ops team have all collectively got together and said this is what we want it to look like all right cool well with that we're going to wrap it up folks as always thank you so much for listening uh, you know if you get a chance tell a friend uh, the show's still growing uh, we love the feedback you know send us some feedback whether it's on Twitter or, or email or wherever uh, and with that for Tyler and for, for myself we're going to wrap it up and uh, thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next week Bye.